you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John chapter 7. We'll be continuing in our verse-by-verse study of this incredible gospel, the Gospel of John. The title for this morning's message is Mistaken Identity. Mistaken Identity. John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 36. The Apostle John writes this. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, And the chief priest and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Father, we bow our heads before you this morning. We pray for your grace. We pray for the work of your spirit to enlighten our hearts and our minds to understand this text. I pray, God, that you would take your word and that you would bring it into our hearts in a way that would transform us to help us to see Christ for who He really is. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mistaken identity. Would you rather have your identity mistaken, or would you rather have your identity stolen? If your identity is mistaken, then someone is just going to confuse you with someone that you're not. But if your identity is stolen, then someone is trying to make a profit off of your good name and your credit. Well, I've had both happen to me. I have been mistaken for someone I'm not, and I've also had my identity stolen. One time, I was actually mistaken for being Mrs. Tyson. Now, that's pretty embarrassing, but a few years back, I had longer hair, kind of like a surf look, and uh, one day, we had a ministry at our church, a golf tournament, where a fellow by the name of Brian McKenzie who's actually preached from this pulpit, used to be an NFL football player, was our speaker. So he came to my house, picked me up. We go to the golf tournament. I say, Brian, on the way, I need to deposit some checks. We pull into the bank where they had those vacuum things, you know, so you park a little bit outside of the bank, and they send those things over into the bank teller, and you sign your check or deposit, whatever. So we did our little bank exchange. Brian's driving. I'm sitting in the passenger seat because he picked me up. And when the bank teller was done, she said, is there anything else I can do for you, Mr. and Mrs. Tyson? (laughs) To which I was like, no, we're fine. Thank you. (laughs) 
I guess from the distance, they thought that was Mr. Tyson, I was the Mrs. Tyson, right? But that was kind of embarrassing. That's why I cut my hair a little bit shorter now. So I've had my identity mistaken, but I've also had it stolen. Maybe this has happened to you or you have a credit card company that all of a sudden calls you to check on some of your expenditures or you're checking your credit card you know, account and all of a sudden you see all these bogus claims on there or charges on there and you have to run it down. That's a huge headache. A couple of years ago, I had my social security uh, number somehow identified my tax return with the IRS and I had to file another tax return because someone tried to take my tax return. Uh, so that is just a frustrating thing, right? So what would you rather have? Would you rather have your identity mistaken, which would just kind of lead to some embarrassment, or would you rather have your identity stolen, which could lead to you stealing some money? Well, today in John 7, 25 through 36, we're going to see how the Jews had Jesus's identity mistaken. And in this passage, Jesus's identity is not stolen. It is mistaken. But this is the worst thing that could have happened. First of all, you can't really steal Jesus' identity because no one is able to adequately do the miracles that Jesus did. But Jesus' identity could easily be mistaken as the Jews were confused about who Jesus really was. And mistaking Jesus' identity is not just an embarrassing mistake, it could cost you your life. You can't mistake Jesus for being an ordinary man and still go to heaven. You can't mistake Jesus for being someone other than the Christ and still go to heaven. You could never steal Jesus' identity, but you should make sure that you never mistake it. If you mistake Jesus' identity, you'll be more than just embarrassed. You'll suffer an eternity in hell. This morning... We are looking at the confusion in Jerusalem about the true identity of the Christ. And if you'll remember, we are here in the middle of John chapter 7, in the middle of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And this is one of the three special feasts held each year where the Jews would remember their deliverance from Israel, their traversing through the, through the wilderness, and then coming into the Promised Land. But it was also to remind them that the Messiah is coming that he is coming, that God's provision is not done yet. And here it was that the brothers of Christ wanted Jesus to come with him at the beginning of the feast. But if you look at verse 14 of this chapter, it was about the middle of the feast when Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Jesus wanted to show up on his own timetable. We saw last week how Jesus claimed not to do his own teaching, but the teaching of the Father who sent him. We also see that Jesus was not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the Father. We saw Jesus challenge the Jewish legalistic accusation that he had done wrong by healing a man on the Sabbath. You see, the Jews had made some extra man-made Sabbath laws of certain things you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath, and Jesus had broken those man-made laws, and so they wanted to convict him and to crucify him. Jesus exposed the fact that if circumcision which was an act of necessity, was allowed on the Sabbath, then certainly healing, which was an act of mercy, would also be allowed on the Sabbath. After all, Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath. And we ended last week with this verse, this challenge from Christ, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. This means that the Jews should not be making quick 
judgments on appearance. Rather, they should examine the Word of God carefully and make judgments in the right way with God's Word being their only authority. authority. Not the Talmud, not the Mishnah, not their tradition. And Christians today should be doing the same thing. Don't judge someone else based on their appearances or based on your personal preference or based on your conviction or based on your tradition of your church or your family. Rather, we are to judge with the right judgment based on God's Word. And we need to be loving and gracious and patient and understanding. But nevertheless, we need to judge in order to properly function as a Christian church and family. The Bible is the standard for doctrine and for morality, not our culture. Parents are in charge at home, not the child. Elders have been commanded and appointed to shepherd the flock, and we need to submit to them as unto the Lord. And this morning, what I want to do is look at the confusion in Jerusalem, and I want to ask three major questions that come up in this passage. And the three questions are this. Number one, could this be the Christ? Number two, could anyone do more than this man? And number three, could we come to where it is that the Christ is going? First question, you see it there in your outline if you're taking notes, could this be the Christ? Your first blank, if you are taking notes, says this, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. Let's look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? Now, if you'll remember, at the end of verse 19, Jesus said, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered in verse 20, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And I told you last week that maybe some of the people in the crowd weren't aware of some of the planning of the authorities, the Jewish leaders who had made a plan to kill Jesus. But if you look all the way back to verse 1 of this same chapter, we read, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go down to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Question, why are they seeking to kill this man, this innocent man, this lover of people, this holder of truth. Why would they kill him? Well, look at John chapter 5, verse 18, right after Jesus healed the man by the pool at Bethesda. We are told why they wanted to kill him. This is why, John 5, 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, now just keep in mind here, he's not really breaking the Sabbath, not God's Sabbath, he's breaking man's Sabbath. Jesus never broke a single one of God's laws. He's only breaking extra law that they added on the Sabbath. So they're saying they're seeking to kill him not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so they wanted to kill Jesus because he was breaking their Sabbath rules and therefore claiming to be equal with God. And so there were definitely enough people in Jerusalem where they started to kind of put it all together and say, wait a second, isn't this the guy that they wanted to kill? Isn't this the man that they wanted to bump off? Isn't this the theological outlaw who is apparently worthy of death? And this leads us to verse 26, where your next blank says, the Jews were not doing anything about it. Verse 26, the Jews were not doing anything about it. So in verse 25, if they're like, hey, isn't this the man they want to kill? And here he is, verse 26, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? If this guy 
is the man they wanted to kill, they're asking, well, why aren't they doing anything about it? I mean, here is Jesus speaking openly at the temple in the middle of the Feast of Booths where everyone and their brother could hear the guy, and the authorities aren't doing anything about it. So they're asking, why not? Perhaps the Jewish leaders feared debating Jesus in public, for no one ever spoke like this man. Or maybe the leaders listened in silence, remembering how boldly Jesus had cleansed the temple and accused the Jews of making his father's house, which was supposed to be a place of prayer, into a den of thieves. So these Jews are astonished. The regular Jewish people are astonished by both their ruler's speechlessness and Jesus's fearlessness. Jesus's boldness his prowess, his passion, and his listeners are all now spellbound because they just can't believe kind of what's going on in this scene. Now, some of this kind of stuff is prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah tells us a lot about the demeanor of our Lord and how he would approach life and ministry. In fact, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 through 9 says this, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. That's a prophecy about the Lord, how he would come in boldness, how the Lord Jesus Christ would set his face like a flint, like he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to do what God's called him to do, and nothing's going to stop him. We see this same boldness after the resurrection in the apostles and in the early church. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Acts 4, 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. It's a few chapters later where Barnabas reaches out to Paul, tries to introduce Paul into the apostle group there in Jerusalem. But Barnabas took him, Acts 9, 27, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had met the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Acts 13, 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. So we see again and again here, Christ is not intimidated. His apostles, after the resurrection, are not intimidated. And that same spirit fills us today. Are you intimidated in this culture? Do you tuck your tail and run at work? Are you scared to speak up for Christ? We ought to be filled with the same boldness, not timidity, courage, not fear. We ought to attack the day and not run from the culture. It was just last week or maybe a couple of weeks ago I was preaching something to the same effect on that application of being bold for Christ. Some lady meets me at the back. Forgive me if I forgot your name, but somebody meets me in the back. She said, I'm done at being scared at work. I'm going to tell them this week about Jesus. That's what we need. We need people like you and like me every moment of every day saying, you know what? That same boldness that gave Christ and the apostles the ability to stand up and speak out, I want it. So let's pray for it and ask God to fill us with that same ability to attack and not to always be on the retreat. Now, notice that Jesus is speaking openly 
where everyone can hear. I like this because unlike the cults, there are no secrets in Christianity. You're part of some cult, there's always a secret, a secret handshake, a, a secret place in the temple, secret underwear. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. All right, so there's ideas of things are always in secret. That's in the Mormon church, by the way, if you didn't know. They have special, holy, secret, under armor. All right, so the idea is just know that there's nothing in the gospel or in the Bible or in the work of Christ that's a secret. It's always open. It's always public. It's always out there for everybody to see. The idea here is there's no secrets in Christianity. Also, I would say, unlike pagan practices, there is no immorality in Christianity. There's no lewd practice. There's no type of, of some type of, 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 of immorality going on at the temple like in Athens, Greece. Unlike false teachers, there's no money grabbing. There's no arrogance. There's no self-exaltation in Jesus's ministry when it comes to Christ. It is the pure, simple, unadulterated truth. That's what Jesus is teaching at the temple. And not only that, but Jesus had been openly condemning the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. Here, even in John chapter 7, he told them that Moses gave the law, and yet none of them keeps the law. So he's just pointing out like, hey, you guys are claiming Moses this and circumcision this and the Sabbath this. You're not even keeping his law. A little bit later, he condemns them for the whole thing about circumcision. Again, when he says in verse 24, don't judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. In other words, in this chapter, Jesus is giving a clear condemnation of the Jews and their understanding of the Sabbath and their practice of the Sabbath. And so the Jews start questioning, their average everyday Jew is now questioning the Jewish authority saying, huh, well, why aren't they doing anything about it? Maybe they know something we don't. Maybe they have some new information that shows that Jesus actually is the Messiah, the Son of God. Maybe they know that this is the Christ. Now, you know what I think? I think that deep down, many of the authorities knew that Jesus was the Christ, and they denounced him anyway. I think they didn't want to admit that they were wrong. I think that they wanted to get rid of this man who was turning Judaism upon its head. I think that what Paul said about the Romans in Romans chapter 1 also applies to these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Here's what Paul wrote, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, if that's true for the Romans, how much more is that true for the Jews? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things which have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their own thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools. I'm saying just like that applies to the Greek culture, that applied to the unbelieving Jewish leaders. They knew Christ was the real deal, and they rejected him anyway. And this leads us to verse 27, where we see how these Jewish leaders thought they were so wise. Your next blank says this, the Jews thought they knew Jesus's origin. They thought they knew where he came from. Look at verse 27, but we know 
where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Again, they think they know, but they really don't. They were wrong in saying, we know where this man comes from because they believed that Jesus was born in Nazareth and therefore a Galilean. Yet the fact is, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus did indeed fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5.2, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus did belong to the tribe of Judah. Mary and Joseph were a part of the house and lineage of David. They should have known better. And yet we see here, again, that they were judging by appearances and not with the right judgment. I mean, you understand Jews, out of all ethnicities, kept really detailed um, genealogies of what tribe you're in. And they're saying, well, no one's going to know where Jesus comes from, but we know where this guy comes from. Either they're lying through their teeth or they just didn't do their homework. They're also wrong in saying no one knows where he comes from because the Bible, again, screams at the fact he would come from Bethlehem. I mean, did they, did they forget what even King Herod the Great went through with the wise men saying, yes, we understand there's this prophecy. That's why he whacked all those babies in Bethlehem. It's a very sad truth about what happened because they knew about this prophecy. And yet now here we are 30 years later and they're like, well, nobody knows where the Messiah comes from. It's like it's all there in the Old Testament. These people think they know, but they don't really know. Some people will be willingly ignorant. Some people will suppress the truth. Some people will deny the obvious. And you know what? There are thousands of people in the present day who are just as blind as these Jews. They shut their eyes against the plainest facts and doctrines of Christianity. J.C. Ryle says at this point, quote, they do not believe what they do not like to believe. They will not read, nor listen, nor search, nor think, nor inquire honestly after the truth. Can anyone wonder if such persons are ignorant, faithful and true? Is that old proverb, there are none so blind as those who will not see. What these Jews are doing is willfully suppressing the truth. They won't know part of Christ. They won't know part of his program. They want to stick to their power, to their reign, and to their, them being in charge. And so Jesus then responds to these inquiries, and he sets the record straight. At your next blank, Jesus is now going to set the record straight. Verses 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now, at this point of this discussion, in the middle of this feast, Jesus had enough. He proclaimed an answer to their questions. And this word proclaimed, it's a strong word in the original language that means he cried out, he proclaimed, he made a vehement outcry about what's going on. I believe that our Lord is using sarcasm here appropriately when he says, you know me and where I come from? In other words, he's saying, you, you guys think you know me? You don't really know me. Jesus is actually asserting here that these unbelieving Jews don't know him and that they don't know his father. Now, Jesus is just exposing another false assumption that the Jews knew him and that they knew all about him when they really didn't. 
And again, Jesus connects himself with the Father. He's saying that if you really knew the Father, you would know me. Because he sent me. I'm not here of my own accord. He is not here of his own doing, but out of the doing of the Father. And so when he says, hey, you don't even know the Father, that is a serious indictment against the Jews saying they don't know God. And so when he's saying here that they don't even know him, you do not know him, this is a big time statement. You got to get this just for a second. He's saying you don't know Yahweh. You don't know the creator God. You don't know the covenant-making God, the God that you boast about and that you claim about. You don't know him. You don't know the great I am. You don't know Adonai. You don't know El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. You don't know El Elyon, the Most High God. You don't know Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner. You don't know Jehovah Raha, the Lord my shepherd. You don't know Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. You don't know Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jesus is ticked off. He's like, you don't even know him. So quit claiming you know him because if you knew me, you would know him. But because you reject me, you don't know him. That's why he says in John 14, 7, if you had known me, you would have also known my father. That's why he says in John 14, 9, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. Do not believe that I am the do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. So the first question that we're asking this morning is could this be the Christ? The answer is a resounding yes. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Lord. This is the Master. This is the Son of God. This is the Son of Man. This is the son of David. This is the Lamb of God. The answer is yes. Could this be the Christ? Yes. This is Jesus. As we continue to look at this Jerusalem confusion, a mistaken identity, the second major question that comes up is this. Number two, could anyone do more than this man? Could anybody do more than this guy? Next blank, the sovereign timing of Jesus's death. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Well, at this point, the Jews are infuriated and wanted to arrest Jesus right then, right there, but no one laid a hand on the Lord. The apostle John is moving this narrative toward the cross we are only about six months away from the crucifixion. It is not going to happen at the Feast of Booze, but six months later at the Feast of Passover. Now, King Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus, but he could not. Those in Nazareth tried to throw Jesus off a cliff, but he walked right through their midst. The Jews attempted to arrest Jesus several times, but his time had not yet come. What does that mean? That means the sovereign control of the timing of Jesus' death is a common theme in the Bible. Time and time again, they tried to get him, but his time had not yet come. It happens here in verse 30. It happens in John chapter 8, verse 20, when it says, but no one arrested him for his hour had not yet come. Later in John 12, 23, Jesus finally says, it has come. It hasn't come. It's not come. It's not come. Then right before crucifixion, he said, hey, now it's time. Now it's time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, 23, John 12, 27. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
No, but for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Eventually, Christ's hour did come as he went to the cross, but his time had not come here at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles with this unruly crowd. We can be encouraged by that this morning, knowing that the overruling hand of God is over all of his enemies. The unbelieving Jews had the will to hurt Jesus, but they did not have the power. They had the desire to kill Jesus, but not the ability until Jesus' time had come. Neither Jew nor Gentile, nor Pharisee or Sadducee, neither Zealot nor Roman, neither Annas or Caiaphas, the high priest, neither Herod Antipas or Pontius Pilate could lift one hand against our Lord without the sovereign permission of our all-wise and all-powerful God. Do you remember the interaction between Jesus and Pilate when Jesus was held in custody? John 19, 9 through 11 tells us about it. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Now this should be a comforting reminder to each one of us today, that your hand, uh, that, that, that your life is in the Lord's hand, that your life and your death belong to our sovereign God, that your days are numbered, but they're numbered by the Lord. And just as God knows every hair on your head and how they're numbered, so is every day of your life. The Lord gives life and he takes life in his time and in his way. And you will not die in a wrong hour or in a malicious minute, or even a split second before the Lord's timing. God holds your life. God holds your death. God holds your future in His hands. And death has no ultimate victory and no ultimate sting because death itself is controlled by God. Now, that brings great comfort because when that phone rings from the doctor's office and you just found out that you have a bad illness, God is still in control. When you get news about a loved one who's passed away, God's in control. We got to take comfort this morning and dig deep and just say, you know what? Just like Christ's hand is in the hand of the Lord, my, my life, Christ's life in the hand of the Lord, my life is equally in the hand of God. There were many who admired the great general Stonewall Jackson because of his bravery, how he would stand there in battle. So that's why he got the nickname Stonewall Jackson. Nobody could get through or past when he was leading his army. And so they asked him one day, a private asked him, why is it that you're so brave? How can you just go into battle like that? Stonewall Jackson said this, quote, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. I do not concern myself about that but to always be ready, no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then we would be equally brave. Are you living like that today? Are you living in a way where you say, you know what, my life's in the Lord's hands. Now, I'm not saying be stupid and drive recklessly or do something that is risking your life without, you know, it being a, a reasonable thing, like bungee jumping, I guess, if you're harnessed in double strap, All right, you know, but the idea is that ultimately your hand is in the hand of the Lord. Are you trusting the Lord with your life? Are you trusting God with your death? 
do not live in fear, but realize that just as Jesus' death was in God's hands, so is yours. That ought to give great comfort. I hope that comforts every policeman's wife when your husband gets up to go to work. I hope that comforts every fireman who's going to go out into the battle. I hope that you're comforted this morning just to know our time, our life is in the hand of the Lord. Now, the next question I want to see here in B in your outline is, would the Christ do more signs than Jesus has done? This is a profound question. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, some of the Jews are now starting to believe that Jesus maybe is the Christ, and they might have remembered some of the prophecies foretold about the Messiah's miraculous works. I mean, again, Isaiah 29, 18 said, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and out of darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Again, in Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, prophecy of the miracles that Jesus would do, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so this was the way that Jesus confirmed uh, with his disciples, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist, rather. You remember when they came to Jesus and said, hey, are you the one? Are we supposed to wait for someone else? And Jesus said, go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. It was clear in the Old Testament that Jesus would perform many miracles and only uh, already in just this gospel alone, we've seen how Jesus turned the water to wine. We see how he had divine knowledge about what was within a man. We've seen how Jesus had uh, the knowledge of the woman's past, of the woman at the well that he met there in Samaria. We saw how Jesus healed an official's son. We saw the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda. We've seen the feeding of the 5,000. We've seen Jesus walking on the water, calming the storm. We saw how Jesus, when he gets in the boat where the disciples are rowing, immediately reaches the other side. Time and time and time again, Jesus is doing special signs that point to the fact that he is the Son of God. Now, not only not only are all of these signs pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, but the Jews had also determined that there would be three miracles that only the Messiah could do. So other Old Testament prophets could do various miracles. Other New Testament apostles would also do various miracles. But the Jews had determined there are three miracles that are called messianic miracles. And only the Christ could perform these three. Number one, the healing of a Jewish leper. Number two, the exorcism of a mute demon. Number three, the healing of a man born blind. Now, if you collect all the Old Testament prophecies, these three, for whatever reason, they just determine this has got to be the Christ, the healing of a Jewish leper, the exorcism of a mute demon, and the healing of a man born blind. Well, guess what? Jesus did them all. He's already done two, and he's going to do the third one in John chapter 9 when we spend some time reading about how Jesus heals the man born blind. He's literally fulfilling every single prophecy of the Old Testament scriptures about the Christ. So no wonder these people said, well, what else is he supposed to do? Like, who in the world is going to do more than this man? This man's already done it all. He's already tagged two out of three of the messianic miracles that are to be done. And that's a question that maybe I want to ask you today particularly if you're a skeptic and you don't know what you really believe about Christ, 
let me just warn you, don't make a mistake about the true identity of Christ. What else would Jesus have to do that He has not already done to convince your mind, to win your heart, to change your will? The answer is nothing. He has already done it all. The resurrection ought to be enough. The transformation of brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be enough. The Word of God ought to be enough, pointing to the fact there's not a single thing that God or Christ or the Spirit needs to do to convince anybody of anything. The problem is not with Christ, it's with you. Stop doubting. Stop questioning. Stop scoffing and start repenting and believing and putting your faith in this God-man, Jesus Christ, who alone can forgive you of your sins. Don't be a skeptic. Be a saved individual all by grace through this gospel by seeing Christ for who He really is. And at this point, as it's starting to get clearer and clearer, we read in verse 32, the Pharisees now put forth effort to have Jesus eliminated. They want Him gone. They want him eliminated. And so verse 32 says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So in other words, these new believers were asking what else is Jesus supposed to do to show he is the Christ? And uh, they're saying, you know what? We got to get rid of this guy because they heard them muttering about it. In this context, that word muttering means, quote, to expose oneself in low terms of affirmation. It means, quote, to speak secretly or to whisper in the affirmative. This kind of reminds me of that child on that movie, Polar Express. Our kids like to watch that movie sometimes around Christmas time, and it's a skeptic kid who doesn't believe in Santa Claus. And so you kind of get to the end of the movie, and he finally says, I believe. You remember that? It's like, I believe. Well, that's what's going on here. These Jewish people, the regular Jews, not the leaders, but the the regular people, they're starting to say, I believe. I believe this is the Christ. I've seen his miracles. I've heard his teaching. He's outdone all of the Jewish scholars. This must be the Christ. And so these Pharisees are now getting pretty serious about knocking him off. So they call some officers to come take care of him. We see Pharisees and Sadducees working together. That's the high priest. We see the Levites, who were likely the temple guards, who were supposed to keep peace there, want to come after Jesus and to arrest him. And this is what the world wants to do with Jesus. Once people start changing and turning, they want to come remove him out of our culture. They want to take scripture verses off the walls and silence the students who walk in the halls of the public high school. They want to censor every Christian testimony and filter every Christian conviction out of the public square. Once, we, once, the, once people start saying what we believe and we're following Jesus and we're serious about this, it's like, let's get rid of this. They want to condemn every Christian politician who stands for Christ and mock every pastor who preaches the whole counsel of God's word. But you know what? You can't stop the cause of Christ. You can't corral all the Christians on this earth. You can't confine all the Christians in this country. You can't control the message of the gospel coming out of this pulpit. You can't stifle the truth. You can't deny the power of biblical love. And the gates of hell will never prevail over the church of Christ. It will never happen. They'll never win. Though they come, though they try, and so we're reminded here that God is still in control. I love what A.W. Pink writes on this passage, quote, 
How blessed then to know that everything is under the immediate control of God. Not a hair of our heads will be touched without his permission. The demon-possessed Saul might hurl his javelin at David, but hurling it and killing him are two different things. Daniel might be cast into the den of lions, but as his time to die had not then come, their mouths were mysteriously sealed. The three Hebrews were cast into the fiery furnace, but of what avail were the flames against those protected by Jehovah? Let me tell you something. You're protected by Jehovah if you're in Christ this morning. You're protected by Him, so let's be a voice for the gospel. Let's be unashamed, and let's continue to see the true identity of Christ. One last question, number three, major question number three, could we come to where it is that the Christ is going? Could we come to the place where it is that Christ is going? Next blank, unbelievers will never be allowed to go to heaven. Jesus then said, verse 33, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am you cannot come. So the guards were sent by the chief priest and the Pharisees, but they could not arrest Jesus. So the Lord continued to teach in the temple, and he is saying that he will only be on earth for a little while longer, like six months until the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then the ascension. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you for a little while longer, but then I'm going to be gone, and I'm going back to the Father who sent me. That's what Jesus is going to do. His mission will be completed. He will go back. It will be over. He will return into heaven where he'll sit at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And then he addresses the unbelieving Jews who had rejected Jesus. And he said to them, you will seek me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. I believe that Jesus is simply saying that those who reject Christ will not be with him in eternity. If you reject the fact that Jesus is God, if you reject the fact that Jesus died for your sins, if you reject the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, then you will not receive eternal life. Jesus says a similar thing in the very next chapter. He says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come because these unbelievers will die in their sin. They will not go to heaven. Now, I get that. We get the fact that unbelievers don't go to heaven. I think the part of this verse that just kind of grabs us a little bit and twists it a little bit in our hearts and in our heads is the part that says, when Jesus says, you will seek me and you will not find me. What is Jesus saying? You will seek me, but you will not find me. Does he mean that certain individuals would change their minds, but it would be too late? Or does he mean that Israel as a nation would have national regret and when they see the end times, when Jerusalem is under a final siege, that they would repent as a nation. Well, I'm not sure exactly what Jesus means in this context, but I do know this. In the parable of the ten virgins, the foolish virgins were not prepared for the bridegroom's coming and had to go looking for oil for their lamps at the last moment. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were not ready went uh, those who were ready went with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. I also know 
what the Bible says about Esau, who apparently wanted to repent, but he could not. Hebrews chapter 12, 16 and 17, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I also know what we read in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. I do know what the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Bottom line, don't play around with God. Bottom line, don't wait. Today's the day of salvation. Bottom line, don't mess around and mistake the true identity of the Messiah. Don't scoff at the teaching of the Lord. That's exactly how these Jews responded in verse 35. Verse 35, your next blank says, even believing Gentiles will go to heaven before an ethnic Jew, because here's how they respond to that, verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that, he will, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Can you hear what they're saying? They're like, those are heathen people. Those are dogs. We don't even eat with the Gentiles. What is he going to do? Go, go hide himself among the Gentile nations? It's exactly where the gospel's going. It's exactly what God tells us in, the, in, in Christ when Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Yes, that's what he's going to do. They're mocking him. What are you going to do? Go hang out with the Greeks? The Apostle Paul was known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. They're mocking him. Where are you going to go that we're not going to find you? And they're mocking the fact that worldwide missions would take place to reach people outside of the ethnicities of the Jewish, ra of the Jewish race and of the Jewish people. And yet the gospel will go to the four corners of the earth. The gospel will be preached throughout the world so that people from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation could know the Lord. And so I would say, your last blank, the scoffers missed Jesus's point entirely. They missed it entirely. So they keep sitting there. In verse 36, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I come, you, where I am, you cannot come. They're repeating the Lord's words, but these ridiculers in their own hearts are denying the gospel. They continue to shake their heads. Instead of listening with a heart to learn, they continued in their unbelief. Instead of being teachable, they became more stubborn. Instead of being softened with their hearts, they were hardened in their own sin of unbelief. They were fulfilling Proverbs chapter 1, verse 28, when it says, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Dear people, we need to heed the words of the Lord this morning. We need to seek the Lord while he may be found. 
You may be here this morning, and you may be a little boy or a little girl or a teenager or a college student. You may have been in church all your life. It matters not to Jehovah. What he wants to know is, do you know him? Do you know his son, Jesus Christ? If you heard his voice today, would you harden your heart? Have you mistaken the identity of the Lord? Could this be the Christ? Yes, it is. Could anyone do more than this man? No, they could not. Could we come to where it is that the Christ is going? Only if you come through the open arms of Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle said of this passage, quote, let us take heed to ourselves lest we sin after the example of the unbelieving Jews and never seek the Lord Jesus as Savior till it is too late. The door of mercy is still open. The throne of grace is still waiting for us. Let us give diligence to make sure our interest in Christ today while it is still called today. A couple of questions to think about as you leave. Number one, how does understanding Christ's identity help you better understand your own? How does understanding that Christ is the Messiah help you understand that if you're in Christ, that's all that your life is about? It's about knowing him and making him known. You're a child of God if you're in Christ. Understand his identity so that you can understand your own identity. Number two, do you realize the significance of the fact that no one could ever do more than Jesus? What else are you waiting for? What other miracle needs to be done? Zero. Come to Christ today, who's the perfect fulfillment of all the prophecy, who's the perfect Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Number three, are you past the point of no return? If you're afraid of that this morning, you read the questions about the, the, the virgins uh, who didn't have the oil and it was too late, the door was shut. When you hear that about Esau, he wanted to repent, but it was too late. Does that scare you? If so, come today. Come to Christ and he will by no means cast you out. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to look into the seriousness of the words of Christ teaching again here at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the Tabernacles, about who he is. God, I pray that you would help every person in this room have great clarity on the identity of Jesus Christ. We know where Christ is from, he was sent from the Father. We know who Christ is. He is the Messiah. We know that no one could do more than he's ever done. And we know the only way that we could be with him is to repent of our sins, to trust Christ as Savior. And so we ask you, Lord, to do a special work of grace in the hearts of these dear people. On this day, if there be someone here afraid, running, doubting, would you draw them in? Would you allow them to see your love and your care? God, I pray that you would be exalted in the heart of every Christian today, that we would be comforted by the sovereign timing of how you're in charge of all things. I pray, God, for every Christian today that you would help us to be sanctified, to grow to be more like Jesus every moment of every day. Show us, O Holy Spirit, how to apply the teachings of our Lord in our own hearts and our own families in a way that would make a difference as we love Christ and as we follow him this week, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.